And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Get your Bibles turned to chapter 8. We spent six weeks or so in chapter 7, and we see, you know, just kind of the tenor of chapter 7 is a struggle, particularly the last half, is a struggle by believers with sin. Uh, Unfortunately, we're not going to be rid of that uh, until somewhere down the road, till either we pass out of this life or if Jesus should come before that. Uh, As long as we're alive in these bodies, sin has a slight hold on us because of our sin nature. Well, in this chapter 8 addresses this kind of head on. All right, so today we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4. So if you would, and if you're able, would you just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My goodness, folks. If you want to memorize a verse and you know the Lord... Memorize. Let's say that together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll continue. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning to bow the knee. We're in a, a, a sacred part of Scripture here. Not that any is not sacred, but Father, uh, just that first verse is so encouraging for us as believers to understand that we stand in Your presence, not condemned. Father, there is no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray that You would speak to our hearts. Help us to understand what's going on in in these four short verses, Lord, and what a difference it can make in our lives. And I pray that there's anybody here that doesn't know You as Lord and Savior, that they'd be drawn to Your Son Jesus this morning. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we come to a chapter that has often been called the greatest chapter or at least one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. The Swiss commentator got it. Not G-O-T-I-T. It's got it. G-O-D-E-T. That's his last name. Uh, He pointed out that it begins with no condemnation. We just looked at that. And it ends with no separation. That's all the way back in verse 38 and 39. And then another commentator pointed out that in the middle, there is no defeat. Okay? If you're discouraged or depressed, I encourage you to read chapter 8 of Romans. I don't see how you can read it and remain down. If you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you're going through trials, read Romans 8. If you don't know how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, read Romans 8. Now, it's interesting that Romans 8 has the flavor of exhortation, but there's not a single command in the chapter. The German pietist Philip Spinner, he said that if the Bible were a ring and Romans was its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point 
of the jewel. Now there's a, quite a noticeable shift between uh, Romans 7 to Romans 8. In chapter 7, I is frequent. Remember Paul referred to himself 46 times, I, me, myself. Um, the law is prominent and sin is dominant. But when you get to chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is frequent. 19 times Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. It's the most of any New Testament chapter. God's grace and His persevering love are prominent, and victory over sin is dominant. So we have reached a turning point. There are several ways to outline this chapter. I'm just going to give you one. I mean, just just doing this study, I mean, there were 20 different ways to outline. Everybody looks at it different. I'm going to give you a pretty simple one. Number one, justification and sanctification. God's salvation through Christ and His indwelling Spirit gives us life to overcome judgment and sin. Now that's verses 1 through 13. Number two is adoption, a precious doctrine that's overlooked far too much. God's Spirit assures us of our adoption as His children and heirs. Now that's 14 through 17. Three is glorification. Although we and all creation we suffer now, God will bring us to final glory. That's verses 18 through 30. And then number four is assurance. No attack, no hardship can ever separate God's elect from His great love. That's verses 31 through 39. Now, with that as just kind of an overview of the chapter, let's zero in on verses 1 through 4. This is where Paul deals with two very practical issues, sin and guilt. As we saw in chapter 7, believers are continually fighting an an inner war. With the new new man in Christ, they joyfully concur with the holy commandments of God's law. They see that God's law is holy, righteous, and good. But the old man, the flesh, our indwelling sin, with that they're prone to be held captive by that law of sin. Now, as I explained over the last couple weeks, I understand Romans 7, 14 through 25, that's the last half of that chapter, to refer to mature believers who all the more recognize sin in their lives. The closer they get to the holy God, the more they see their unholiness. And it brings forth this wretched man that I am cry that Paul talks about there in verse 24. So they must understand how to deal with guilt and how to overcome temptation. When we do sin, as Christians, the enemy comes in to stir up our doubts about our salvation. We talked about this in chapter 7. He says things like, how do you know that all of your sins are forgiven? True Christians don't do what you just did. You're hopeless. You might as well just admit your hypocrisy in claiming to be a Christian and quit trying to be holy. Well, it's to these practical issues that Paul directs these opening verses. Our main thought this morning is not that difficult. God has graciously set free from sin's penalty and sin's power all who are in Christ Jesus. Now, these are wonderful verses, no doubt, yet they're not easy to interpret. In fact, godly commentators and pastors disagree at various places in various details. Some see, some see verses 1 and 3 as pertaining to justification, with verses 2 and 4 applying to sanctification. 
I think that Paul is dealing with justification through most of the paragraph. And he brings in sanctification at the end to answer his critics who accused him of promoting licentiousness. Now, licentiousness, that's a big, long, fancy word. It means to take license with the law. It means to disregard the law. Now, I want you to note that verses 2 and 3 both begin with for. It can be translated because. In verse 2, Paul explains what he said in verse 1, which clearly deals with justification. So, I understand verse 2 primarily to explain justification. Now, verse 3 further explains, beginning with 4, further explains verse 2. Now, the first half of verse 4 gives us the, if you will, the results of justification. And then the second half of verse 4 describes those who have been justified. Paul says that they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Moving forward, verses 5 through 11 explain the difference between those in the flesh and those in the Spirit, and it's a huge difference. And then he applies it particularly to believers in verses 12 and 13. Well, today I've just got two major points. The first one is going to take up the bulk of the message, and that is, number one, justification. God has graciously set free from sin's penalty all who are in Christ Jesus. There are three stages of Paul's thought here, and we'll look at them. A, those who are in Christ Jesus, they can be assured that they will not be condemned at the judgment. This is verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most straightforward verses in all of Scripture. If you have not memorized it, do it. It won't take you long. It's very short. It, you're going to need it over and over again. Every time you sin. <laughs> what a verse to go to. Now, the, the King James, okay, so, some of you out there use King James, and I love the King James. That's what I grew up on. Uh, they wrongly put the phrase from verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They tag that on also at the end of verse 1. Uh, that rightly belongs at the end of verse 4. It was probably inserted in verse 1, or after verse 1, by a copyist who was really worried about that bold statement as verse 1 stands on its own, and that that would lead to licentiousness. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But it lacks sufficient manuscript support. As a matter of fact, uh, you may be familiar with the Schofield Study Bible. Okay, it first came out, and King James was the, the Bible. And even in the Schofield Bible, there's a little asterisk there, and it says, hey, this, there's, no, there's not sufficient manuscript. This probably shouldn't be here. The earliest manuscripts do not have this there. So it's acknowledging as well that it's probably not there. The verse ends with that wonderful phrase that Paul uses so many other times, in Christ Jesus. Now, there are four words, four phrases that we've really got to understand before we grasp the truth of, truth of verse 1. Okay, you've got therefore, no condemnation, now, and in Christ Jesus. Each of those adds something to this verse. So let's talk about therefore. It's not immediately obvious what Paul is referring to with this therefore. Therefore makes you look backwards, doesn't it? Right? You say something, you go, therefore... Based on what I've just said, well, what is, what is the therefore, therefore? A lot of people think that it might be going back to 725. This is where Paul says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But if you read the, 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 the rest of that verse, there's an intervening summary 
at the end of that verse, and it makes that connection kind of unclear. Probably Paul is going back to the entire argument of justification by faith alone that has dominated the letter from chapter 3, verse 21, 21 onward. But there is another definite connection. The word condemnation in the Greek there, it only occurs elsewhere in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. So that's the only three places it's used. It's where Paul argued that just as condemnation came to the entire race through Adam's sin, so God's free gift of justification came to us through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18, just as we were under condemnation in Adam, so now in Christ we are justified by His grace. So therefore, goes back to sum up that great truth of the gospel of justification by faith alone, through God's grace alone, in Christ alone, that Paul has already laid out for us. Now, no condemnation, that's our next phrase here. No, that's emphatic, and it simply means not any, not one. Condemnation is a legal, it's a forensic term that includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence. In Adam, we all stand before God as guilty and condemned to eternal punishment. We're on death row, as it were, awaiting the execution of the guilty verdict that has been passed against us. If we die in that condition, we pass into eternal separation from God, which the Bible tells us is the second death. But since Christ bore the punishment that we deserved, in Him we are set free so that we stand before God justified, acquitted, all charges dropped. Now this raises the, the practical question. As a believer, should I feel guilty when I sin. If there is no condemnation, should we refuse to feel guilty when we disobey God? Interesting question. I would argue that properly understood, believers should feel guilty when they sin. Now this guilt stems from the fact that I have violated God's holy law. I have disobeyed my loving Heavenly Father. Rather than loving my Savior who went to the cross on my behalf, I have loved the sin that put Him there. Feelings of guilt that lead to genuine sorrow and repentance when I disobey God, they are very appropriate. On the other hand, I should not feel the guilt of condemnation that stems from the accusers, the adversaries, the devil's false charge. True Christians don't do that. You're not even a Christian. If I mourn over my sin and am repentant in my heart before God over it, then I must accept His forgiveness and answer the accuser with the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony that I trust in Jesus. I've told you before, if you look at your own lives for your assurance of salvation, too many times it's going to lead to despair. If you will only look to Jesus, your whole worldview will change immediately and understand that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To put it another way, the guilt that I feel when I sin, it's relational. As with a child to the father. It is not forensic. It's not like a criminal standing before the judge. 
Big difference. Big difference. The third word is now. This refers to the great change that came about in salvation history when God sent His own Son to bear our sins on the cross. Now that Christ has come, we no longer need to bring the blood of sacrificial animals over and over and over again to atone for our sins. The book of Hebrews tells us that once for all, Jesus offered Himself as the perfect and final sacrifice. But personally, it also applies to that time since you put your trust in Christ as your sin bearer. Since He bore the full wrath of God, which you deserved, and your trust is in Him, not in any good works of your own, now you stand before God under no condemnation. Even when you stand before, even when you sin, you stand before God as His child, not as a guilty criminal. That word now, that should bring you great relief, great comfort every day, especially when you sin. And finally, this great blessing of no condemnation, it's not for everyone. Paul tells us it is for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we saw in chapter 5, there's only two classes or two categories of people, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are in Adam are under God's just condemnation, and they face His awful wrath for all of their sins. Those who are in Christ have been clothed with His righteousness. His death paid the penalty for all of their sins so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Think of it this way. The unbeliever has his judgment day before him. It's ahead. It's in the future. Judgment is coming for the sinner. But for the believer in Christ... His judgment is behind Him. It's in the past. It was taken care of at the cross. And so it's no trivial question to ask, are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Have you fled to Christ as your only refuge from God's judgment? When God destroyed the world through the flood, the only thing that mattered was, were you on the ark? You may have thought yourself a decent person, but if you weren't on the, ar ar on the ark, guess what? You perished. You may not have believed that God would actually judge the whole world, but your believing it did not change the reality. God brought that terrible judgment, and the only ones who were saved were those who heeded His warning and got on board the ark. So have you gotten on board with Jesus Christ? If you're in Him, you're safe from that judgment to come. If you're trusting in your own ability to swim outside of the ark, you are still under condemnation. So those who are in Christ Jesus can be assured that they will not be condemned at the judgment. Can I get an amen? It, it doesn't get, I'm telling you folks, it just doesn't get any better than that. B, liberation from the law of sin and death comes only through the law of the Spirit of life, which we find in Christ Jesus. This is the second verse, Romans 8.2. For the law of sin, uh, law, excuse me, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the four, 
That explains how it is that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. You see, before Christ, you were under the law of sin and death. Now, this is referring to that strong principle, that authority of sin that dominated your life as an unbeliever. Unchecked, that life under sin's domination was leading you towards death. Verse 2 has a secondary application to sanctification, uh, which is simply the process of growing in holiness, growing in Christ's likeness. Believers are now freed from sin's domination by this new principle or power of the Spirit of life. But I think that verse 2 primarily refers to the new life that the Holy Spirit gives to us in regeneration, in, in being born again. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus Nicodemus was a religious Jew, and he came to it at night, and Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That's regeneration. He also said, also said in chapter 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Religion, no matter how conscientiously we follow it, cannot deliver anyone from the power of sin and death. All the good deeds in the world will not set you free from the law of sin and death. To be set free, you need new life imparted by God's Spirit. Now, along with this new life comes complete justification from all of your sins but also, this new life means that you are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We saw that back in chapter 6. The new law of life in the Spirit frees you from that old law in which sin held you down. It's kind of like the law of aerodynamics. That's what frees that heavy plane from the law of gravity. And it can fly. So I understand verse 2 is primarily referring to that new life of the Spirit that He gives us in regeneration. That new life comes to us in Christ Jesus. It frees us from the law of sin and death. Now, of course, this new life in the Spirit works after regeneration by giving us the power to overcome sin in our daily lives. Sin still tries to hold us down. It always will. But the life that comes from the indwelling Spirit gives us the power to soar above uh, sin and the resulting death. We'll see, God did what the law could not do, and that is, through the substitutionary death of His own Son, the penalty that the law demanded was paid. Roman, this is verses 3 and 4a. Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, as Paul has stated, the law brought God's wrath. It resulted in actually increasing sin. And the problem wasn't with the law. We've already seen that. The law was righteous and holy and good. The problem is with our flesh. The law did not provide the power to keep it, and so it was weak through our flesh. Apart from God's intervention, the law only serves to condemn us. But thankfully, God did intervene. He sent His own Son. 
Salvation is completely from the Lord. God sending His Son, if you'll notice, that implies the preexistence of the Son. You don't send something that doesn't exist. You send something that does. Do you notice the Trinity in our text this morning? God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son to offer Himself for our sins so that the Holy Spirit could provide us with new life. God is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. Do we understand that? No. Okay? I think that's by design. What, What kind of God would we be serving if we could actually understand everything about Him? Yeah, He'd be like us. Well, the word own in this verse here, it's emphatic. It shows God's great love for us. He says He sent none other, none other than His own Son. When Jesus came, Paul says He took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there's a fine balance here that we need to be aware of. Jesus did not come in sinful flesh. We know that because He never sinned. If he had been born in sin, then he would have had to die for his own sins, and he would not be a fit sacrifice to die for our sins. Neither did he come in simply the likeness of flesh. That would mean that he's not truly human. And believe it or not, that was an early church heresy known as docetism. They, they claimed that Christ only appeared to be a man. But Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. His body was a real human body. John testifies that, that which we've held, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched. That is the word of life. He had a body so that he could die for human sins because he was human, but he was also sinless so that he could be the lamb without blemish, dying as a substitute for sinners. Now, Paul also says that he died as an offering for sin. The, little Greek, the literal Greek phrase is for sin, which may mean to deal with the sin problem. It's also a technical phrase. In the Septuagint, in 44 out of 54 usages, it refers to as a, it's referred to as a sacrifice for sin. The result of Christ's sacrificial death was that He condemned sin in the flesh. Now that phrase, it might better be rendered, in the flesh, He condemned sin. Condemned sin. This means that by His sacrificial death, offering His body on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. His death was substitutionary in our place. He died the death that we deserve so that we could be set free from the law of sin and death. Now there is debate over this next little phrase, uh, verse 4a, in order that the requirement of the law uh, might be fulfilled in us. Many scholars that I respect, like Thomas Schreiner, James Boyce, John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the list goes on. They understand this to refer to obedience of Christians who walk by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables them to obey God's law. So they see it as referring strictly to sanctification in our lives. And there is no doubt that to some varying degree, that is true in all of us. The Holy Spirit is the one that enables us over time to, you know, overcome the power of sin. Others, like John Calvin, 
Charles Hodge, Douglas Moo, they point out that even with the Spirit's power, no believer fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. You remember I told you what James said. If you keep the entire law but stumble in one point, what? You're guilty of the whole law. Only Christ completely fulfilled the law by His perfect obedience and sacrificial death. So I think that the first part of verse 4, it's referring to Christ's perfect righteousness applied to our account, credited to us, through faith. This is a doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Critics have always alleged that that particular doctrine will lead to that licentiousness or that disregard for the law. If God counts us as totally righteous apart from any of our good works then we can sin all we want so that grace might abound. And you remember, that's how he opened up chapter 6. And what was Paul's response? By no means. May it never be. God forbid. Here he counters it by adding the last phrase of verse 4 and then expanding on it in 5-13, through 13, which we'll look at in the next few weeks. So second major point quickly is sanctification. God is graciously set free from sin's power all who are in Christ Jesus, those who walk after the Spirit. This is 4b. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, justification, that's verses 1 through 4a. That's a necessary foundation. It's also the motivating cause of sanctification. Justification frees us from sin's penalty. No more condemnation. Sanctification frees us from sin's power. What is the doctrine that frees us from sin's presence? Anybody? Come on. I'm not going to answer it. All right. Justification frees us from sin's penalty. We're no longer condemned. We stand free before God because of that. Sanctification has to do with our being conformed to the image of God, and that has to do with the power of sin. You know, it diminishes over time. As we walk in the Spirit, we, we do away with power. What is the doctrine that delivers us from the presence of sin? Oh, my wife got it. She's listened to me for 30 years. She got it. It's glorification. In our new heavenly bodies, there is going to be no sin. There... Sin will be gone, and we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Thank you. I'm glad you listened a little bit. Man. All right. Because God has forgiven all our sins through Christ's death, and because He has imparted new life to us through the Holy Spirit, we now walk according to the flesh. I mean, uh, uh, walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Walk implies that steady gradual progress along a path toward a specific goal. In this life, we're not going to perfectly follow that path. We're not going to walk in perfect obedience. Only Jesus did that. And His perfect righteousness is credited to our account so that we now can stand before God without any condemnation. But, as we learn to walk daily in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we will make progress in obedience to God. 
We will grow in holiness. We are being conformed in the image of the Son. We'll look at that later in Romans 8. Our lives will increasingly be distinguished by fruit of the Spirit. Salvation by grace through faith alone always results in a life of, of walking in good works. Now, I think the, the best verses that you know, tell us about this is, is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You know 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse 10 begins with for, or because, meaning it's related as a result of this salvation, for we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's one reason that we're saved, is to walk in good deeds. Now I want to leave you with two questions real quick here. One, are you in Christ through faith in His blood, shed for the remission of your sins? If so, Scripture assures us you can enjoy the assurance that there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Number two, are you walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh? Each day, do you yield to the Holy Spirit and rely, and, and rely on His power so that His fruit, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, are they growing in you? Here, here's a great little example. If I, I should have brought a banana. I take a banana and I, I toss it out to a Rich and I say, Rich, is this a banana? He looks at it and he goes, yeah, it's a banana. I said, how you know? You haven't looked inside. Oh, well, okay. So he opens it up. And he says, yeah, it's a banana. I said, are you sure? Have you tasted it? So he, he bites it and he goes, yeah, that's a banana. Okay, it's confirmed. It's a banana. Why don't we have to do that? Because God's creation, <laughs> it, it's, it's pure. <laughs> we know it's a banana. When we get squeezed as believers, what should come out of us? The fruit of the Spirit. If anything, comes, if anything else comes out of us when we're squeezed, that's an area that God is working in your life. Okay? Well... Christ died, and the Spirit gave you new life to set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again just for an opportunity to dive into your word. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is good stuff here. It's so encouraging uh, when, when we consider uh, that justification has resulted in uh, no more penalty for our sin. That was taken care of. And today we begin to look at the fact that yes, and because of that same sanctification, Father, we are no longer under the power of sin. That day by day, we are, the inner man is being renewed, Father, and is being renewed after the fashion of Your Son, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray if there's anybody in here today again that doesn't know You, that You would speak to their heart. Father, don't let them leave this place without doing business with You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're sitting out there and, and, and you, you, know, you know you don't know God, there's only one, Bible tells us there's only one way to know God, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. I was talking to, I can't remember who it was, I guess it was on Thursday at our men's, maybe it wasn't, I can't remember, somebody was talking to. The Bible says there's only one way to come to God, and that's through Jesus. Jesus Himself said that. But you know what? There are scores and scores and scores of ways to come to Jesus. 
We've got one gentleman in our uh, congregation who decided to pick up and read a Gideon Bible. That's him. And uh, God changed his life through his word. The way you can come to Jesus, okay, I'm just telling you, if you've got something inside of you saying you need to listen, you need to get right with God, you do it through Jesus. And we go to Jesus because He paid that price over 2,000 years ago for your sin. Come to Him. Ask God to forgive you. He's the one that you have offended with your sin. And we're all sinners, every one of us. To this day, every one of us are sinners. If you're in Christ, you're a sinner saved by grace. You need that grace today. Come, ask God to forgive you your sins. Trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and He'll make you His child today. If you're a believer, I hope it was just an uplifting message, uh, just considering the fact that, yeah, if you're in Christ and you know you're in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. Whew. But we've also been given this new law of the Spirit of life, right? And that produces this holiness in us. So this is about as encouraging as it gets, y'all. Now, the rest of the chapter is quite incredible, and I'm looking forward to it. But I hope you're walking closer today when you leave because of what we talked about this morning. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.